Welcome to the Practical Research Parenting Podcast. Here's your host, Nicole Weeks. She's deadlifted her own body weight. Hello and Happy New Year. This year is starting well with three great episodes with Dr. Ashley Sutherland from Nurture and Thrive blog. Ashley is a developmental psychologist whom I met through blogging and I found her answers to my questions really helpful. The first question was around two to three year old boundary testing. Next episode I talk with Ashley about promoting independent play in a one and a half year old and in the final episode with Ashley we discuss a two year old who has started using stalling tactics at bedtime. Here's the first interview with Ashley. Hello. Hello. Nice to finally talk to you. I know it is. Been reading the, your blog for a while now, I think. I think you were one of the first people to like kind of comment on one of my very first posts, actually. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah. 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 yeah I remember getting really excited when I found your blog because it was someone doing something similar to what I was doing and looking at the evidence. And yeah. I know. Vice versa. Same for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. It's like we've uh, sort of grown together. When did you start? I started in January, so almost a year ago. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, I started with Gusto about then too, I guess. Um, Yeah. I was doing, I sort of started when I was doing my thesis, but of course my thesis took priority, so. Yes. Yeah. I know. That's a big balance. Well, thanks for having me on to do this. This is exciting and fun. I've never done a podcast before. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done many interviews. I've done one with Sarah Blunden. I'm not sure if you saw that one. And um, yes, this is my second. So, Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, but it's great. It's great getting to talk with people who know more than I do. <laughs> different stuff to what I do. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I found you through your blog, Nurture and Thrive blog, and I was really impressed by your evidence-based posts. Can you tell us a bit about the path that led you to blogging, including your qualifications and experience? Sure. Yes. So I have always loved uh, kids and working with kids And so I naturally fell into a path of studying child development. And um, my specific area of study is um, emotional development and development of stress response systems. And so that's kind of my, yeah, so that's kind of my specialization and where I came from in my research. And specifically in children, you know, infants through about age five. So a lot, yeah, so a lot of what I studied is emotion regulation, stress regulation, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, all the way back when I was doing my um, thesis work, um, my thesis thesis advisor said to me, you know, Ashley, you should think about, you know, writing a book about some of these you know, things that you're finding or some of the things that we're looking at and making it available to parents. And I've always kind of been interested in, you know, getting the research out there to the people who would use it the most. Um, But it was kind of something that was in the back of my mind. And, um, you know, I went on and and did my PhD at University of Notre Dame and um, graduated in 2004 and did research and 
teaching for, you know, more than 10 years. And um, when I had my son, um, when he was about two, I decided to take a step back from my career and, you know, be able to be a stay at home mom with him. Mm -hmm. And about, I would say about a year into that, I realized I'm still, you know, asking all these questions and I'm looking up research studies, you know, when he was having trouble sleeping or going through a sleep regression, or I'm still asking all these questions and looking, you know, at the research and talking to people. And I, I had so many new questions, you know, Mm -hmm. as a mom and trying to kind of, you know, organize my thoughts between everything I have learned, you know, in my career. And then now everything that I'm learning as a parent. And Mm -hmm. I just really wanted to write my thoughts down and, you know, try to organize my thoughts. And so I decided, okay, well, maybe I should do that thing that my thesis advisor suggested all those years ago. But I said, you know, I'm going to do a blog, which, you know, when I was doing my thesis, I didn't even know really what a blog was because that was a while back, you know. So, um, that's kind of how the blog got started. And when I was thinking about the blog and writing for the blog, I kind of realized two things and, Mm. you know, thinking about all of these things as a mom now and not just a researcher, but, you know, one of the things was there's a lot of great information in research journals that nobody knows about. Yeah. Completely. You know? Yeah. Or it's in so many different bits and pieces, you know, so especially Mm. sleep research, as you've spent a lot of time on your blog talking about. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much information, but it's a little bit of information here and a little bit of information there. Yeah. And I just found myself wanting to kind of pull information together and then also make it practical because... It, you know, the way that it's written in research journals, it can be very helpful, but it's not quite there because that's not their audience, right? Yeah. yeah. So that was the first thing was, yeah, there is a lot of information out there. But the second thing that I yeah. learned was there's a lot we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's so many more questions. And so the blog became a way for me to kind of start to explore some of those questions. And I mean, really... It's just me asking questions as a mom and looking to the research and other people and experts to try to answer those questions and kind of get a a practical, you know, edge or tip. Um, And it's really, you know, all of the stuff that I write about is things that I use in my own parenting or, um, you know, that friends' questions have brought up to me. So it's all kind of personal so that's really where it all started and came from. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I have so many things I want to follow up on. <laughs> um, so you chose to stay at home with your child when he was two. So does that mean you were still working all through the sort of up till he was two? I guess you took I was. some maternity leave? I did. Yes, yeah. I did have maternity leave. Um he was born at the end of May, and at that point, I was working at a small college, so I was teaching um, 
you know, during a normal semester or the fall and the spring. So I had um, kind of the entire summer. And then I came back and, and a kind of a part-time reduced hours in, in the fall after he was born. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then, yeah, at two you went, you decided that it was, it would be nice to stay at home with him. Yes, yeah. I did. It was um, a kind of a confluence of factors. We uh, moved across the country and um, we moved back to um, the south and we had been living in the north and it was just kind of a good time. And also, you know, being in a tenure track position at a, you know, college, um, raising a child, (laughs) the balance is very difficult. Um, um, and so for, for me, it's been a great experience to kind of take a step back. And I did, you know, for the first year, finish off some research projects and and things like that, that I had been working on. Um, but now I'm pretty much a full-time mom and I'm really loving it and having a great experience with it. And so we'll see what happens in the future. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's, um, you know, everybody has kind of their path and their story and, and what, what works for them. And, you know, it sometimes it takes a little bit to figure it out. I wish I had figured it out when he was three months old. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that sounds really lovely. It's a lovely age too and they, they get so interactive. And yeah. yeah. So how old is he now? He's, he is uh, four and a half now. Okay, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing, what was it? Yeah, so your specialty in emotional regulation is fas- a fascinating area and it's it's very important for self-settling, isn't it, self-settling to sleep? Yes. Yeah. It is. Um, yeah, we talk about kind of self-soothing, especially, you know, in the first year of life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, babies learning to be able to do that and realize that they can kind of self-soothe themselves to sleep. Yeah. Um, it's a very important milestone, I think. Yeah. And, and, and it is kind of the roots of self-regulation, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've just, um, yeah, I've noticed in the literature that they'll often talk about self-soothing or emotional regulation. And I'm sort of assuming that they're pretty much the same process. Yes, um, I do. Um, So when you look at the development of emotion regulation, um, you know, emotion regulation is being able to, oh, control impulses, control behaviors, um, reduce negative emotion, or in some cases, reduce positive emotion or enhance emotion. All of those things, it's kind of like control over behavior and body. Um, so at a very early age, you know, in the first year of life, one of the first ways that babies show self-regulation is through self-soothing behaviors where they might um, rub a blanket or suck their thumb or use a pacifier or rub their hair is another common. Um, And that's kind of a way that they're calming themselves down. And for babies, you know, physiologically, you know, they're still developing so much, you know, so that nervous, that immature nervous system needs calming movement and calming activity um, to help it uh, regulate and thus grow and develop. 
Yeah. And then of course, yeah. And then of course, as kids develop, you know, emotion regulation can start to look a little bit different, like, um, you know, maybe more behavioral. And so it moves from maybe an early kind of self-soothing to uh, attention regulation or, um, you know, controlling impulsive behavior and so on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So self-soothing is sort of, I guess, a subset. It's sort of more limited to those sort of trying to settle down and doesn't extend to trying to stop hitting someone or, or prevent yourself from hitting someone if you feel angry sort of thing. Right. And we do see like self-soothing behavior, you know, continue. Even some adults might engage in self-soothing behavior, but we find that it's not really effective with older kids or um, in certain situations. It's not as effective. Of being able to disengage your attention, for example, yeah. or refocus your attention on something else, or you know, use a strategy to um, uh, you know change your behavior. Um, so those you know, self soothing might still be there, and it might be a little bit comforting, but it's not enough anymore. When yeah. when kids get older, it's not effective enough. Yeah, so I guess it re- gets replaced by more. Um, complex behaviors like, you know, consciously taking a few deep breaths and that sort of thing. As they get older, that would exactly. sort of take the place of mm-hmm. what used to be self-soothing. Exactly. Yeah, right. Fascinating area and very mm-hmm. relevant Thank to you. kids and sleeping and yes. just everything really. Emotions, sort of what's behind the fights and the almost everything you're dealing with emotions. It really is. And it's, you know, early childhood is such a sensitive period for this. I mean, we really see emotional control, you know, start to organize, you know, physiologically in the brain and behaviorally between one and a half and two. And then it doesn't really fully mature physiologically even until age five or six. So this is something that kids are doing and practicing and learning um, all along that early childhood period. Yeah. Um, So it is. I I have a post on my blog called The Most Important Skill (laughs) to Teach Children, and it's really all about emotion regulation. And I do believe that. I do believe that it is kind of underlying, you know, moral development, altruism, gratitude, kindness, all these things are, um, you know, you have to have the base emotion regulation there, you know, and then these more complex emotional behaviors um, are related to that. Yeah, that was actually the first blog post that I read and I loved it. Oh, was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Thank you. Okay, so shall I get on to the questions we have? Yes. Um, so the first is my own question. It's that Xander's um, three and a bit now, and he started doing the opposite of what I asked him to do. Um, so it's coincided with him starting to request the no game, which has many variations like no eating, no laughing, no packing up. Um, it's basically where I tell him not to do something and then feign annoyance when he does it. Um, so I feel like this behavior and games are all part of testing boundaries. 
I'd like to know more about testing boundaries. boundaries. Um, my specific questions are whether I should continue to engage in the no game with him and how can we provide boundaries without overusing punishment and reward? This is a great question. And um, I love the no game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, lo- I love the idea of the no game. Um, I mean, obviously, Xander's testing boundaries, right? Yeah. And he's, you know, at age two and three, children are learning that they have their own sense of self separate from their parents. And they discover this newfound power, right? Yeah. That they have a self and they want to assert it. And it's, it's a very normal um, stage of development. Yeah. Um, you know, research shows that, you know, simple defiance increases or actually it, it, it kind of peaks at age two and then slowly decreases until yeah. about the age of five or six. Oh, that's and at nice. that same time, negoci- negotiation, yeah. which is a more skilled kind of um, behavior increases. And that's exactly what you want to have happen. Yeah. But if you think back to the baby stage, like when babies first learn, you know, how to roll over and then that's all they do. They roll and roll and roll and roll. They might even wake themselves up in the middle of the night because they've rolled over in their sleep. So what's challenging for us parents is that two and three-year-olds, this is their new skill is to Uh assert their power, right? (laughs) And they're just going to... Yeah. And they want to practice it all the time. Right. Right. And so, you know, it's interesting because as parents, this is, this is very challenging because Mm -hmm. we have this, you know, little person who's discovered their power and they're asserting it and challenging us. And they discovered that they can make us have interesting responses. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, they want to see those interesting responses and they don't really think through to the ultimate consequences. Right. Yeah. And they've learned to push our buttons. Right. Yeah. And so as a psychologist and as a mom, so as a mom, you look at this and you're like, Oh, this is challenging. Not again. You know, I just want him to listen to me and, We've got to, you know, eat breakfast and get out the door and get to preschool and so on. And, you know, but as a psychologist, you know, you kind of in the back of your mind are like, wow, this is really great because you want your children to develop independence. And we raise our kids to be independent, especially in Western cultures. Right. So it's this kind of catch 22. Yeah, that's that we want to. Yeah, that we want our kids to be really independent, but at the same time, we want our kids to be compliant, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's so true. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I can't remember right now, but there was a really interesting article, I think it was in the Washington Post or something, about this kind of idea, this idea that, you know, independence and compliance, how to... How do both of them, you know, coexist? Yeah. Um, and we do want kids to be compliant as well, right? Mm. Both of these skills are important. So the question is, you know, how how can we have both 
encourage independence and also, you know, have children listen to us and be compliant. Um, So research points to kind of two things. And the first is self-regulation, right? Right. Um, So when we're thinking about children who are compliant, um, and, and what I mean by compliant is children who want to follow society's rules. Yeah. You know, they're kind of internally motivated to um, go along and cooperate. Yeah. So it's really kind of more we're looking at um, cooperation. Right. And in the research literature, they talk a lot about committed compliance. And, and what they really mean by that is, you know, a child who's internally motivated to cooperate in, in situations that you would expect, you know, someone to cooperate. Um, a lot of times researchers will test this by, you know, having kind of a cleanup scenario. So the mom and the child plays in the laboratory and then they, you know, signal the mom to say, now let's clean up. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, a child that has high committed compliance is going to clean up and do it with a fairly positive mood without needing a lot of prompting or without needing a lot of external guidance from the parent, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit, but not a lot. And so how do you get to that point? So yeah. children who have high committed compliance tend to have high self-regulation. Right. Committed compliance is more common at age five and six than it is at age two and three. So it's also something that develops over time. And it's also something that's related to what researchers call mutually reciprocal orientation between the parent and the child. And and really what they mean by that is a parent and child who in their observations, you know, maybe at the dinner table in the in the in the family's house yeah. or in like a free play situation in the laboratory where the mom and the child or the father and the child um, are in sync, that they have good communication, that the vibe between the parent and the child is generally positive. Yeah. um, And a a sense of kind of a warm relationship. Yeah. Um, So those are the things that predict compliance, Mm. right? It doesn't mean that, even if you have this kind of relationship that your child is going to be compliant all the time, um, they're also going to be independent and assert themselves. So, um, so those are the two things, self-regulation and this warm relationship. And so that's kind of why I love that Xander is, is playing this no game because it's a fun way for him to practice the skill of being a little bit defiant and asserting his sense of self and his agency um, without any real life consequences. Yeah. Right? And it's, it's, it's done in a warm way. So it's maintaining yeah, exactly. that side of the things as well. Right. And so it's this fun kind of game. Um, so I say, you know, absolutely keep playing it as long as it serves its purpose. Yeah. But now if you feel like, you can't kind of separate the gameplay from like other times, Mm. then you could, you know, remove it one step from, you know, you and him playing it. You could play like with, you know, two dolls or two toys, you know, and then that would help kind of give you 
one degree of separation between the no game and, you know, the rest of life. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. So that's one thing that you could do it to, you know, um, maybe not stop playing it, but separate it a little. Um, another thing to do is like when you need him to be compliant, when you need him yeah. to pack up or eat his food or whatever the situation is, you know, try bringing in a playful game in those situations, yeah. like a different kind of game, a yes game. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It might not be as exciting for him. Or I like to use a listening helper, which right. is just any toy. And basically the toy, have the toy say, oh, wow, I don't know how to brush your teeth. Can you brush your teeth. Can you show me how you do it? And they get excited and they start to kind of like, you know, go along and be compliant. And they're completely internally motivated to do so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what we ultimately want. Right. We want internally motivated cooperation where we aren't having, we're not having to use external rewards or punishment to, to get the job done. Yeah. Right. Something I've found has worked really well recently with cleaning up is a sort of like a race. I count how many things Xander packs away and I count how many things I pack away. And sometimes we'll get in each other's way and that sort of thing in, in playfully. And, and that seems to work really well because he wants to get more than me. And yeah, yeah, that's another great way to do it. And I, I think that, you know, it's one of those things where um, playfulness always helps compliance yeah. with kids. And it's one of those things where, you know, I have to tell myself, you know, wait a minute, instead of, you know, asking him, do this, do that, do this, do that, you know, do it in a more playful way. And it, it, it takes a little bit of upfront, you know, thought from you and a little bit of upfront planning, but that's easier to deal with than, you know, a power struggle that you yeah. might have, you know, on the other side of it. Um, so, yeah. that, and then the last part of your question was kind of how to basically encourage compliance when you need to, without using, you know, relying too much on rewards or punishment. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I try to do is use natural consequences, right? right. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's say, you know, it's, t you're getting ready for bed. It's time to brush teeth and Xander's playing the no game, right? Yeah. And he's yeah. not brushing his teeth. And, and so what you can do in that situation, if you try being playful and that doesn't work, you know, you can say something like, okay, you're choosing to play the game and it's not time to play the game, yeah. right? Not playing the game now. But if you continue to choose to play it, then you're also choosing not to have story time because we're running into story time now. Yeah. Right. And so instead of saying something like, if you don't brush your teeth, you're not going to have a story before bed. You know, it's really the same consequence. You just frame it to the child differently because it really is truly a natural consequence. Like the longer that they have all these stall tactics and, and do all this, you know, the later it gets yeah. and we won't have time for story. And so that's the child's choice. And so you're putting the power back in their court, right? Yeah, yeah that makes it's, sense. Yeah. 
And so it's not a power struggle. It's, it's simply a choice. Now they might not really realize the choice that they're making the first time and they might be upset about it, but they'll probably remember it the next night. And you can say, remember, right? Remember last night you chose to play the note game, but then we didn't have story, did we? Because we ran out of time. And Yeah. yeah. And so it's, I mean, it is kind of the same consequence, but it's how you frame it, I think, can make a difference to it being the child's choice to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I also try to use natural consequences a lot. Uh, A scenario that I'm really struggling with at the moment is when Xander takes a toy off Beth, which happens quite frequently. Um, and I'll often say, please don't do that. Give her another one or give it back to her, or it's not fair to just keep taking what she's playing with. And I feel like because I've said that I should in some way enforce it, but it's not, it doesn't feel right to then take the toy off him because then I'm modeling exactly the, the behavior I don't want him doing. So do you have any ideas on that? No, it's sort of sprung on you, this one, but. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, and so he's taking a toy from his little sister, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a challenging age for that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, one idea would be to um, say, explain that we can't take a toy away. But maybe you could have a turn with the toy if you then give it back. Yeah. And how how old is his little sister? She's one, one and a half. She's one. Yeah. So one and a half. So I don't know if it if um, she's old enough to <laughs> to participate in this because yeah. it, you know it is kind of at that age where it's hard for um, a one and a half year old to give an older brother a turn with the toy, you know? So if you ask nicely, maybe she'll give you a turn and then you can give it back. Yeah. Um, A little bit more concrete than share. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then of course I always use the, you know, what researchers call induction. Right. So, and all that means is, you know, explaining to the child, how would they feel? Right. And and how would you feel if somebody came up and and took a toy from you? Right. Yeah. Um, Which I'm sure is something that, that you do. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I did that the other night actually. And uh, Xander's response was, I'd feel fine. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, oh, well, good. Then you won't mind if I take this toy off you now. And so I took it off him and he said, I feel fine. I'm like, ah, okay. So I guess that was an example of him showing how independent he is. Yes. He knows how to push the buttons, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know. And that's, you know, and that is part of this age, I think. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You have to come up with a good natural consequence for that one. Yeah. 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 To think on that. Yeah, yeah, I've I've heard that the sort of balance between independence and compliance. I, I sort of read, I read a study that was talking about in a- adolescence as well, where 
Mm-hmm. Um, kids can try to increase the distance between themselves and the par- their parents just because they can't see how they can have a good relationship and still be independent, which is yes. sort of the same sort of battle but, you know, a long way down the track. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, that's, I think, um, part of the attachment um, literature. So when we talk about um, attachment in infancy and childhood, we also talk, talk about attachment with, you know, older kids and adolescents. And kind of the goal of having a positive, secure attachment with a, a teenager is called kind of interdependence. Right. So they kind of go through this period where they might separate a little bit more from the parent Mm. um, and then negotiate that way back to where they can find this kind of good balance between their knowing who they are as their own person and identity, because identity is a big thing that's developing in, you know, the adolescence um, period. Right. Mm. so they have to kind of figure that out what that balance is. Yeah. And so it is the same kind of thing, but on a different level, right? Which is why you sometimes hear the term, uh, uh, you know, instead of teenager, uh, three-nager yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> for a three-year, right? Um, because it is kind of some of the same struggles, but just on a different um, on a different level. Yeah. So we have a lot to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do, don't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, awesome. That's a wonderful answer. And, uh, yeah, oh, I feel like yeah. I understand it a lot more now, seeing it as that sort of conflict mm-hmm. between independence and, and cooperation. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like to add to that one? No, I don't think so. Okay, so that's it for this question. Please listen in next time to learn about promoting independent play. All links mentioned in this episode and a direct link to Nurture and Thrive blog are on the show notes at www.practicalresearchparenting.com forward slash boundary. So that's forward slash boundary, B-O-U-N-D-A-R-Y. If you enjoy these podcasts, please help me spread the word by leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher or whatever podcast directory you use.